So this chart is a summary chart that really should have gone with my book that I wrote first. The ages of time are from eternity to eternity because it has the entirety of God's plan for the ages of time kind of put in a chart form. Um, there's a lot of different charts that have been made. A lot of people have put out different charts. Um, this is kind of my understanding of putting all those together and looking at all the different aspects of Scripture. I believe, for me, this makes all of Scripture come together better than some of the other charts that I've seen. Uh, not that, that, that in any way I think I've got it all and nobody, and nobody else does. That's not the point. The point is I'm trying to make understandable all the things of, of Scripture that we are dealing with. And before we get started on that, um, the title of our lesson is Preparing for the Kingdom. And I think it is very important that we understand that Jesus gave Scripture uh, to help us live our lives in such a way as we are looking forward to the kingdom, looking forward to the coming of Christ and the glorification of ourselves and all that, that God has in store. The one thing that seems to be a problem or an issue in the church with teachings on prophecy is that because there's so many different beliefs or so many different interpretations of prophecy, many people say, well, it's not important. It's not important because so many people do believe different things, so it's not important to hold one view or another, and we just need to kind of just ignore it and go away from it. And I disagree with that because all Scripture is profitable. God gave Scripture for a purpose, and we should interpret all of Scripture the same way we interpret the main things that we study. I mean, we would never allow that understanding to be said about our interpretation of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. Uh, if someone came up with a different interpretation of that, we would object strongly because we're saying you're not clearly and, and consistently interpreting the Word of God. So when we come to this, this situation or the study of prophecy, Prophecy is not some unique, different category of Scripture. It is God's Word talking about what's going to happen before it happens. But when the Old Testament prophets were talking about God's Word, talked about Jesus' coming in the first part, it wasn't that it wasn't exactly like they said. It was just it was told to the prophets beforehand. So all of this is part of the Word of God. So we, we need to take that as understanding that. The second thing about studying on prophecy and the things about prophecy is it's not so that we can know the future. A lot of people want to know the future. They, they would go to a, for, a fortune teller, a, 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 some kind of prophet, to, to find out what's going to happen in the future. That's not what we're doing. We're preparing for the future by allowing God's Word to so influence us that we are longing for His glory. Now, Jesus Christ will be glorified when He comes back in bodily form to this earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords and sets up a kingdom in which the whole world will know Him as King of the earth. That's when He is going to receive glory from everyone, whether, whether they become believers or not in the kingdom, they still have to see Him in all His glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Jesus told his, the people of Israel when He was doing the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Pray in this way, thy kingdom come. Now, the kingdom of God is here all the time as far as the eternal kingdom. God is eternal and His kingdom is eternal. 
But when he's saying that kingdom come, he's talking about a specific kingdom on earth that he promised for Israel and for the world. And it's a time when God is going to be exhibited as the Holy One that is, that is king righteously. He is the righteous king of all the world. And so when we're praying for that, we're also praying for the peace of Israel, which right now is very important because the peace of Israel is, when we pray for the peace of Israel, we're praying for the Messiah of Israel to come and establish that peace. And that's the only time it will be established is when uh, Christ comes back to do that. So it's very important that, that we pray in the right way and that we uh, are consistent in our interpretation of Scripture and our warning and desiring to live in such a way that we will be looking forward to and preparing for that day when we all come into glory with Him. So how do we prepare today for the kingdom? If we're preparing for the kingdom, what is our role today to prepare for the kingdom? Evangelize, Evangelize to preach the gospel. We're preaching the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes, about when that is. We're preaching the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles, because none of this other stuff will take place until the church is completed. And so our job is to preach the gospel. And so we are, we are to, just like Chris said this morning, we're to live out the reality of the gospel in us, that we are members of the body of Christ, we represent Jesus Christ in everything we do, and we give God glory by being representatives of Jesus Christ. And as we're doing that, we're preaching the gospel to the rest of the world, knowing that as we preach the gospel and the church comes to the point of being completed, then Christ is going to come back and establish His kingdom and do all those things. So that's the importance of what we're doing. Now as far as the chart, real quickly, just kind of make sure you understand, the top line is God's plan for the age of time. It kind of it lays out God's program throughout history. Before there was anything, there was God. And then God created the world, the earth. And I believe He created the earth prior to the six days in, in, in which the same time He created the angels and, and the anointed cherub was over the throne of God on earth and God's throne came down to that earth that He created and then it, and when God judged that earth because Satan's fall, then out of that judged earth, I believe, God in six days, literally six days, created the earth that we know today. You said in the beginning there was God, but you meant the Trinity. Yes, the Trinity is God. God is. God is three in one. So in the beginning there was only God. Three persons of the Trinity, God, the Word, and the Spirit. Okay, that was the three persons of the Trinity before. So then you have the, the entirety of human history where this earth survives until the end of the day of the Lord at when the heavens and the earth are, are, they melt with fervent heat, which is what happens, I believe, is the atoms, that are, everything consists of atoms. When atoms are separated, what happens? It's a, it's a major explosion. It's a, it's a major melting of everything. So I think the atoms will, dis, will, will separate and then there will be no, this heaven and earth will be gone and you'll have the great white throne judgment and then we'll have the new heaven, new earth and the beginning of the eternal day of God. Okay, so that's kind of the timeline of heaven history. Now, we've got three categories in our study uh, dealing with God's entities that he is, that he is using to, to get to the point of the second advent. The first one we decided was the timeline for the, God's program for Israel. 
And, of course, Israel began as a nation when God called out Abraham. And so God called out Abraham and formed a nation and promised Abraham a nation, a land, and a blessed time. And then we know through Isaac and Jacob, the, pro- the covenant was extended to Isaac and Jacob. And then we know that Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Egypt, they became a great nation. And then God called them out of the nation. And then in uh, Daniel's day, God promised to Daniel that there was 490 years that God was going to use from the time that they were commanded to go and rebuild the city, which was in 445 B.C., until Messiah the prince would, would come, which was 483 years later. They rejected him, and so now there's another seven years awaiting the time when the king of kings, the Messiah, will actually come to earth and, be, and establish his kingdom. So there you have 483 years till Jesus Christ, the Messiah, presented himself on Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday as the Messiah, and then he was cut off at the crucifixion, and then he ascended back into heaven, and now the Jews have been dispersed because of the judgment on, of God on, in 70 AD when he destroyed Jerusalem and the Jews. And so now we are waiting the beginning of the last seven years, which is when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel. But Israel had to become a nation prior to that, so now they are a nation. They could sign a covenant today with an Antichrist. So that, that is presently ready to go. And so then, then you will have the seven years of tribulation in which the Jews will be brought to a place of repentance because of all of the destruction, including the time of Jacob's trouble when two-thirds of the Jews that are living on earth at that time will die by the hands of the Antichrist and the unholy trinity. And then Jesus Christ will return when they call upon him as their Messiah, as the true Messiah. He will come back and set up the kingdom and deliver Israel, the remnant of Israel for the kingdom age. And then they will live throughout the kingdom age on this earth. And then after this earth is completely finished, then we have the new heaven and earth. Then the land of Israel will be on that new heaven and new earth and on that new earth. And the nation of Israel will continue with a land given to it in the, in the, eternal, in the eternal earth. Um, so that will be their eternal abode. Now at the bottom you have the program of the Gentile nations. After the Tower of Babel, God ordained, or after the flood, God ordained that there would be nations on earth, and the nations would have the capability of exercising capital punishment so they could control the evil of man in some, in some ways. The problem was that the God of this world, Satan, is over those nations under God's sovereignty, but he's over those nations. And he offered to give all the nations to Jesus Christ when he was tempted in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. He said, all the nations are mine. I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. So he is head of the nations, basically, head of the Gentile nations. And then in uh, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, it reveals that there's going to be four Gentile kingdoms that are going to be ordained of God to bring judgment upon Israel. And this began with Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. when the last king of Israel was dethroned by the by Nebuchadnezzar, and he was carried back to um, Babylon, and, and that was the end of the Jewish kings. And so then, um, uh, after that, the, that began the time of the Gentiles. And so, um, the first Gentile kingdom ruling king was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and then came the Medes and Persians, and then came the Grecian Empire, 
and all that was given in Daniel. And then there came the fourth empire, which was terrible. It was greater than the others. It began with the first phase of the Roman Empire, and that was the empire that was in place when Jesus was on earth. And then after Jesus ascended in 70 AD, that empire is the one that destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews. And, and Jesus told, said that the Jews would be scattered until the times of the Gentiles is over. That means the times of the Gentiles' domination of Jerusalem is what it means. And so Gentiles' domination will continue through it to Israel. Uh, and the last phase of that will be the time of the Antichrist. And he will come to power with, with ten kings. And, and we, we, we went through all that. And so that's the timeline for the Gentile nations. And when Christ comes back, he is the stone that comes from heaven and he crushes the statue in Daniel chapter 2. He is the, the king of kings that comes to rule in Daniel chapter 7. And he puts in a kingdom that will never be overthrown. It will be an everlasting kingdom. So it will be transferred from this earth to the eternal earth. And he will be king again forever in the eternal earth as a king of kings. So today we're going to talk about God's program for the church, which is... The last of these three entities, which is at the, the yellow line at the top, uh, underneath the plan of the ages. So we're going to talk about God's plan for the church. Any questions on the chart? Now that's just, uh, that's kind of an aid for you to kind of, kind of show the correlations of time for the different entities. If you'll notice that the, the, the program for Israel coincides kind of with the program for the Gentile kingdoms. And as Israel, was as Israel was cast off and as Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and Israel was scattered, then the influence of the Roman Empire waned because what was the purpose of the Gentile kingdoms? To trample down the Jews and Jerusalem. And so if Jer the Jews are not in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is not the place of the Jews, then there was no real important part of the Gentile kingdom except to stay in existence. And then now that the Jews are re-emerging and you see the hatred toward the Jews throughout the world, then again, there's going to be a, another one world system that will rise up and the, the, the last of the kingdoms, the extension of the Roman Empire, will rise up again in its, in its desire to dominate the world and eventually to trod down Jerusalem one more time in the middle of the tribulation. Okay, so today we want to look at um, the church and God's program for the church. Now, it's very important that you understand the distinct difference between the church and all the other saints of the Bible. Okay? Now, you had Jews in the Old Testament, but before you had Jews in the Old Testament, you had saints. All the saints before the flood were saints of God, but they weren't Jews. There were no Jews until Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, until Jacob's 12 sons that's who became the Jews. It wasn't Ishmael, so it wasn't the descendant of Abraham or Isaac. It wasn't Esau. It was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that became the Jews. So before there were Jews, there were people that were saints. Noah was a saint of God. Uh, all these saints that happened before the flood were saints of God, but they're not part of the church, and they're not part of Israel. Okay? So... The church, it says in Matthew chapter 16, um, when he's talking to Peter and the disciples, and he's asking them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 16 of chapter 16. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you 
are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I believe that Jesus is talking about Peter's statement that thou art the Christ, the Son of the God, is the rock that is the church is going to be built on, not Peter. Um, Peter is going to be the one to open the doors. He has the keys of the kingdom. So he opens the door to the Jews at Pentecost. He opens the doors to both the Samaritans and the Gentiles when he went to Cornelius' house. So he is the, the apostle that was given the keys to open the doors to the various groups that would be a part of the church. But the church is yet future, and Jesus said, I will build my church. So everybody before Pentecost was not part of the church. Even though there were saints before Pentecost, they weren't part of the church. Okay? So the church, according to Jesus' statement in Acts chapter 1, when he talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which John the Baptist preached that the one coming from heaven, the Son of God, would be the one that would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, he talks about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of me, that for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse uh, 8 he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So the command and the understanding is that Jesus promised that he was going to build his church, and he's going to build his church through this understanding that all those that are in the church would be those that would be baptized with the Spirit. Now the baptism of the Spirit is not regeneration. It is not a, uh, a special anointing like they had in the Old Testament. This is a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus baptized the church, His body, with the Spirit, it means that everyone that became a believer from Pentecost until the church is complete, they are filled or they are, they are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And then they're filled when they repent of their sins and they're living for God and they're repenting of the sins, and then the Spirit of God controls their actions and their thoughts and their hearts and because He's living within them. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that activity of the Holy Spirit just for the church age right now. Now there will be saints during the tribulation that will be saved. There will be saints during the millennial kingdom that will be saved that will be Gentiles. And they will not be a part of the church either in the tribulation time or the kingdom to come they're saints, but they're not part of the church. And that's why you need to understand, if you're understanding the outflow of this prophetic outline, you have to understand that the church is unique and distinct, that Jesus Christ identified as the ones in this age that are born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says the same thing about the body, and it's talking about the giftedness of the body and the uniqueness of the body of Christ. And then he goes down after he talks about the gifts and the working of the Spirit. In, the, in verse 7 he says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Talking about the common good of the church. And then in verse 13 he says, For, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So he's talking about from this point on after Pentecost, whether you are Jew or Greek, during this age, if you're born again, you're baptized with the Spirit, and you're made to be part of the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is also talked about as being the bride of Christ. So look in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about 
our relationship as married to each other and that the relationship of Christ to the church. In verse 23 of Ephesians 5, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, for the, as, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, in verse 26, or verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, when is the church going to be holy and blameless? When Christ comes back. There's another thing that adds to that. What happens after the rapture? Okay, then what happens? Where do we go? Judgment seat of Christ. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, go to, go to uh, Revelation chapters, uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19 is talking about the marriage ceremony. So in the Jewish rendering an understanding of a wedding or a marriage, there's first a time of engagement. After the father of the groom has paid the endowment or the price for the bride, then there is a time of engagement. And then during that time of engagement, the bridegroom goes to his father's location and prepares a house or prepares a place for his bride. And then at a point in time, or at, at a time at least in a year after a year, the bridegroom would go back to the bride's house and fetch the bride and take the bride back to his father's house, and then there would be the marriage ceremony. And then after the ceremony, there would be a marriage feast. So what we're having here in, in Revelation 19 is the marriage ceremony after the bride has been fetched by the bridegroom and brought back to the father's house. Okay? So this is what we're talking about here and, and when he's talking about he is going to present his bride spotless and blameless. So here it is in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lord the, of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So what are the righteous acts of the saints? At the judgment seat of Christ, what's going to be judged? The works of the believers. Okay? So the works of the believers that were done by the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the gift of this Holy Spirit will be rewarded. The works of the believer that were done in them, their own abilities will not be rewarded. But after, after the judgment of Christ, everything is, that is there, that is left, will be the righteous actions, the righteous ministry, the righteous outflow of the gift of this Holy Spirit will be the only thing left. And so the church will then be presented at the marriage ceremony to the father of the bride, uh, the father of the groom, as his, his bride in all of her glory, in all of her perfectness, in all of her uh, blamelessness. Because all of the other stuff will be burned up, and only the things that God produced through the bride will be left. And so we have the marriage ceremony, and then we'll talk later about after this marriage ceremony, then we return with Christ to earth and the, the marriage feast, which incorporates all of the saints, will be on earth. 
The marriage ceremony is a private ceremony for the bride and the bridegroom and, and his, his family. The marriage feast is going to be for all the saints on earth at the time before the, at the beginning of the kingdom age. Okay. One other passage in, second, in, in Ephesians 2. Um, verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus you who have formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, talking about the Gentiles and being made part of the bride of Christ. In verse, um, then in verse uh, 22 it says, And whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So that is the church. And that's the identity of the church. It's not Israel. It's not Old Testament saints. It's not tribulation saints. It's not millennial kingdom saints. It's the saints that are being brought into the family of God between the Pentecost and the completion of the church at the rapture. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, turn to John chapter 14. The feast is on earth, but the ceremony is in heaven. And all that will be covered when we get into the book of Revelation and the, the, actual, the actual events of the seven years and what's going on during that time. In chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus made a promise to his disciples who are the apostles that are going to begin the church. So it's actually a promise to the church. In verse 1 he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. So here Jesus makes the promise to his apostles and to the church that he's going away and he ascended into heaven to go back where? To his father's house. Where is his father's house? New Jerusalem. It is the Jerusalem, Mount Zion of heaven. That's where the Father's throne is. That's where the Father's dwelling is. So Jesus is going back to the right hand of the Father. And at the time He goes back, He's going to prepare a place for our dwelling, the dwelling of the bride of Christ, the church. And I believe that the dwelling of the bride of Christ will always be with Christ in the millennial kingdom, in Mount Zion, as we, as we reign with Christ, on the throne in Jerusalem, around the throne, in our glorified bodies. And then at the new earth, we will be translated to the new earth. And you know in, the, in Revelation 21, 22, it says the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. God's dwelling place, God's home, God's throne will come down to earth and reside on earth for all eternity. And that dwelling place that Jesus is preparing for His bride, I believe will be our eternal dwelling place, the new Jerusalem for the church. And I believe outside of new Jerusalem will be the land of Israel for the dwelling place of the Jews forever. And then outside of that will be the entire earth that will be the dwelling place of the Gentile nations forever. So these entities will continue all the way into the eternal world. So that's what Jesus, here's the promise that He's going away to prepare a place, and He's going to His Father's house. And then He says, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So where is He going to be? He says, where I am, there you'll be also. Back to heaven. So this is the promise. He's coming for his bride to take his bride back to heaven. He's not coming to get his bride and bring them down to earth at this time. He's coming for his bride to take them back to the place he's prepared for his bride in heaven. So this is a reference to his coming 
to rapture out or to take out his bride and take them back to heaven. So that, that's the promise of the, of the rapture or the coming of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom for his bride. Okay. Now, let's talk about the actual details or the event itself. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is where Paul gives the, uh, the details or the understanding of the actual event of the rapture. Now, the rapture is not mentioned as the rapture in Scripture. The word means a snatching away. Um, but the event of the rapture, even though the word itself is not used, there is no question about the validity of the event that takes place in 1 Corinthians 4.13. No matter where you, where you stand on your timing of that event or where you stand on what happens to that event, the event will take place. It's part of Scripture. There's no question about the event of the snatching up of the saints in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay? So, and there are different views on when this takes place and what happens at this, at this event, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but right now, the event itself is not in question. This is going to happen, okay? So Paul is talking about this to the Thessalonian church, and the reason he's talking about to the, the, this to the Thessalonian church is that it has become a question among the church at Thessalonica that those who die before this event are going to miss out. That's the, that's the problem they're having is there saints that are part of the church that are in Thessalonica, and some of these have lost loved ones that were believers, and Paul has been teaching about this truth to them, and so now they're questioning what happens to the ones that die before this happens. Are they going to miss out? So the first part of his, his, his teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, is that those who die will not miss out. But in his teaching of that, he gives us the details of this event. Okay, so let's read in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, fallen asleep means they died. You understand that? It's not talking about soul sleep or whatever. He's talking about if you have died as a believer, you're not going to miss out on this event. He goes on and says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And when he says... We will not precede those that are dead. What he means by that, there's not going to be a long time period between the translation of those living church members and the resurrection of those dead church members. Okay? Now we know that there's an there's a order to the resurrection. The resurrection begins at the rapture, and then at the, at the end of the tribulation, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected, and the tribulation saints that are martyred during the tribulation will be resurrected, and then they will all go into the millennial kingdom in a glorified state that have died or have not been living on earth at the time of the tribulation and extend their physical life to that time. We know that everybody that's born again, from Adam all the way to the last 
martyr in the, in the tribulation, they will all be resurrected and have a glorified body in the kingdom age. But what Paul is saying here is the living church saints are not going to experience this meeting the Lord in the air and the dead church saints are going to have to wait till the end of the tribulation. That's what he's saying. We're not going to precede them. It's going to happen all together at the same time. Okay, so there's six things or seven things that he specifies here about the event of the rapture. Just to make a note in your study about these seven things that are going to take place at the time that this is going to happen. Now again, when we get into the timing of the rapture, we'll talk about the reason why we hold to one view of the time of the rapture. It has a lot to do with what we know about what God said about the rapture. Okay, so in verse 16 it says, well, okay, we'll start there. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. We're not going to go to heaven on our own. We're not going to just have our glorified state go to heaven. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven. So the Lord himself is coming to get his bride. That's what he said in John chapter 14. If I go away, I'm going to come again. I'm going to come again to receive you. Okay, so the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven to meet us where? In the air. In verse 17, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, what does the air mean? Well, there's, there's, three, there's three, there are three heavens. You've got God's heaven, where his throne is. You've got the universe, or the stars of heaven, where, the, where all of the, the heavenly bodies are. And then you've got the atmospheric heavens on earth. So somewhere between God's throne and, and here, we're going to meet him in an atmospheric state. So he's not coming all the way down to earth. We're going to meet him in the atmosphere or in the heavens that are not God's heaven because he's coming from heaven to meet us in heaven, in one of the heavens. Okay, that makes sense. So we're going to meet him. At this is referred to as the secret the world will every eye will behold him when he comes as king of kings and descends to earth this is not coming to earth we're meeting him somewhere between heaven and here okay that's the point he's making is we're going to meet him somewhere between earth and heaven he's coming for us but we're going to go meet him Okay, that's the point he makes first, that the Lord himself is descending from heaven to meet us and to get us. And he says, with a shout. Now, this word shout is a voice of command. It is authoritative shout. It is the Lord himself is going to issue a command for the saints that are dead to be raised from the dead and for the saints that are alive to be changed. So this is a direct command from God, from the Lord himself. He's going to issue a command. So that's what the shout means. He's going to declare, come forth. Dead and alive, come forth. That's the, that's the, the shout. Is, it's time. Now's the time. Now we know that the, this particular moment is imminent. There's no sign of it. There's no sign in Scripture that says, if you see this happen, then you know the shout's coming. You don't know the shout's coming. It will come instantly, without any warning, without any sign. The Lord himself will descend with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel. Now, who's the archangel? Michael is the archangel. He is the chief angel of God. He, he will be the, the, the chief angel over Israel, but he's the chief angel over God. He was underneath, originally he was underneath the anointed cherub. Satan was the chief of all the angels. And when he sinned, and, and a third of the angels sinned with him, Michael the archangel is now the, the chief angel of God. Now, there, we still have the anointed, we still have cherubim around the throne, but it seems like that the archangel is the one that does the warfare for God. It does the, the, the work of the angelic host, and he is in charge of that angel host. But then Michael the archangel will issue the, the, continuing, the continuation of the command from Christ to come forth. He will second that, or he will be the general in charge of the command that will deliver it further down the chain. And then it says, with the trumpet of God. All right, the trumpet of God is a summons. So when you have the, the king issue a decree and then the general follow up with that command to the troops and then the general of the troops blows the trumpet so that the, all the people will know the summons to go, to go to battle or to go wherever. So this is a summons to rise, to go. So, it, so it's kind of all in one the command comes from Christ, it's carried out by the, the archangel, and the trumpet sounds, and the summons to go, and we go to meet the Lord in the air. We'll talk about the trumpet here in a minute uh, when we get to the translation. Okay, so this, the, the next thing that happens is that the dead in Christ are raised or resurrected. The dead in Christ will be the next phase of the resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and then each in his own order. So there's an order to the resurrection of the righteous. The first phase was Jesus Christ, the first fruit. He's the first fruits. The second phase will be the church. So these are members of the church that have died since Pentecost. These are those who are in Christ, baptized into his body, and they will be resurrected first. So all the saints from Pentecost forward that became part of the church will be resurrected at this time and given a glorified body. Their body will be glorified. Now it says in Scripture that it is a body made in heaven, or body made without hands. So it has nothing to do with human involvement in this body. You were born as a human because of involvement of uh, descendants of Abraham through the process that God ordained for us to be created or procreated through uh, sexual means. But this is not made that way. This is a body made in heaven. It is a spiritual body. It is a body like Christ's body. It will be a resurrected body. So when uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about us being changed, does that mean our existing bodies will be modified and go? Or to hear his question, <laughs> you didn't have to bring up Gary's question. We could have, we could we could have, we could have left without that one. All right, all right, all right. The dead in Christ. Any question about the dead in Christ? We raise at this time. There will be a resurrection at this time. All right. And at the same time, it's not like. I mean, we're talking. We're not going to precede them, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be a time lapse between them being resurrected and us being changed. We're all going up together instantly to meet him in the Lord. So it's going to be an instant resurrection and an instantaneous translation. It says, and so 
Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them. Okay, we're going to be called up together with them. At the same time that they're being called up as resurrected beings, we're going to be called up as translated beings. Now look in 1 Corinthians 15, which is what he was referencing to. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of the body. So it talks about if there is no resurrection, then we are, are, are foolish and of, of, of all men most to be pitied because we believe in a resurrection. And if Christ wasn't raised, then there is no resurrection. In verse 20 it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So whether it's his coming for the church or his coming to deliver Israel, at his coming there's going to be a resurrection. And the order will be depending on if you're part of the church or if you're part of the Gentile nations or if you're part of Israel. That's when your resurrection will be. But then he goes on down there and talks about the body. And verse 42 talks about the resurrected body. He says, So also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So in the earthly, we bore the image of Adam. Christ was made in that same type of image. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The only difference in Christ's flesh and our flesh is that His flesh was not of Adam. His flesh was as the Spirit of God caused Him to be born of a virgin. He did not have the sin nature. He did not have the fleshly nature. He, but He was body and He was blood and physical body just like we are. Hebrews makes it clear that he had to become flesh and blood in order to die. So Jesus Christ had the same kind of body that we had without sin. Make sense? Because he was the perfect Lamb of God that went to the cross to die for our sins. So he had a body like ours, but his body was flesh and blood. When he died on the cross and was buried, Gary, there is nothing left in the tomb. But it's all new. So he is not partly flesh and blood and partly spiritual. It is all spiritual. My question is, the corruptible takes on the incorruptible. So is there any evidence at all that one will be taken, the other one left? Uh, are there clothes there left? Is there a pile of dust? You know, that, is there any way we can know for sure that there's no evidence uh, left behind of this fleshly existence? It doesn't seem like that there'll be any evidence because what happened to Elijah and Enoch when they were caught up? They were just caught up. You never saw their change, but they were caught up to go to heaven. They had to have a change to go to heaven because that, that fleshly body could not go to heaven. So either they had to have their body disintegrate and they go without a body or they had to have the body change. And I think it'll be the same case here. 
there was no evidence left behind with Jesus except his garments. His garments, his, his, his garments were left behind. So whether those clothes are going to be left behind, we don't know. But there's no part of that physical body that he had that is not brand new in glory. Now, Jesus is still going to have the scars in his new body, but the scars are there is for a remembrance of what he did. It's not because they're part of the physical body that he left behind. There's no indication in Scripture that you will have any aspect of your physical body that is here now. You will have a completely new spiritual body that will, in all other ways, it'll be a, it'll be a real body. It won't be a phantom. It'll be a real body. It just won't be made in the same consistency as your current body. And so he says, so the natural, the, the, the resurrected body will be a body that will be like Christ. We will bear the image of the glorified Christ. So when Christ had a glorified body that came out of the grave, we're going to have a glorified body that is similar to his glorified body. Now when Christ ascended into heaven, he hadn't, he, nothing changed. His spiritual body went to heaven with him. His body didn't stay. His spiritual body can go to heaven. Our fleshly body cannot go to heaven. Our spiritual body can go to heaven. Okay? So it says in 1 Corinthians 15, back to the ones that are not dead at the time of His coming. In verse 50 it says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have been put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So at the same time that those dead saints are resurrected, we who are living, if we're living when the time of this event happens, we will be transformed into a glorified state. So all believers at the time of this event, will be translated. It's not a partial translation of believers. It is all believers that are on earth at this time will be translated or resurrected. All believers at this time of this occurrence will be part of the bride of Christ. There's not good believers and bad believers. There's not sanctified believers and unsanctified believers. They're not those that have been faithful and those haven't been faithful. No, it's all believers are in the same thing. All sins of believers have been forgiven completely. The only thing that we're going to have at the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of sins. It's a judgment of what the Spirit of God did through you or didn't do through you as a believer doing the work of the body of Christ during this time. Any questions? Ray? Tares and goats won't. Huh? Tares and goats won't. <laughs> Tares and goats uh, is probably a reference not at the time of the rapture, but a time at the end come when Christ comes back and separate the sheep from the goats. So it's probably a little bit later on in the, in the scenario of what happens. Uh, at the time here, at the rapture, there will be many people who profess to be Christians that will not be raptured. That's part of Christendom. So you have an external visible church and you have an internal invisible church. So even in our midst, we have people that are 
born-again believers that are part of the Grace Community Church, and we probably have some that could be unbelievers that are part of Grace Community Church that are not true believers. So it is, this is only talking about the true believers. Christendom, Christendom itself will still be here after the rapture of the church. Do what? When are they taken up the body? At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom. In Revelation 20, the saints of the tribulation, the ones that were martyred and their heads cut off, will be resurrected. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about the resurrection of the Old Testament Jews at the time of the Great Tribulation. So it's in reference to the tribulation time when the Jews become. Um, the remnant is saved and the fulfillment of all that is promised for Israel will be take place. That's part, the resurrection is part of that. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints will, will be at the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel when everything is fulfilled. The first judgment was the flood. The second judgment will be that it was destroyed by fire. Is there a distinct uh, between the uh, millennium kingdom and the new earth? Is there something that distinct? Yes. Well, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, Satan will be released from the pit and he will go out and deceive a multitude of people on the earth and they will rebel against the king and God will send fire from heaven down to destroy them. And so that, that will happen at the, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Yes. But we'll get into that. We're not, y'all are jumping ahead of me here. All right, any other questions on, the, on, the, on this event of the rapture? How about children? That's the question. Uh, <laughs> That's the that's the real bugaboo question. I know that is a that is the question that it's kind of like the the when when babies die, it's nothing in scripture that gives you a clear scriptural reference to what happens to babies that die. So what happens to babies at the rapture? There's no clear again, but if you look at God's pattern and God's principles and God's righteous love for his people, it just seems implausible that Christian believing parents who have children that are chosen of God, I'm not talking about every child, I'm just, just, like, just like when babies die, not every baby I believe goes to heaven or hell, every baby has got to be chosen of God before the foundation of the world. So when a baby dies, we leave it in the hands of Almighty God who chose before the foundation of the world those who are going to be saints of God. And so every person has to be born again. And I think just like I believe John the Baptist was born again in the womb, I believe every baby that is chosen of God that is, that is going to die before they can express faith, it's up whether they are chosen of God or not chosen of God, then, then they will be born again. The same thing I think is true about the rapture. I believe at the time of the rapture, God is not going to leave those that are chosen of Him, that are children of believing parents, I do not believe they will be left behind to fend for themselves at a time when the church is taken up. I believe all, including in the church, will be the, the, the elect of the children of the church people that are, that are going to be, that are saved at the time of the rapture. I believe that those children will go with the church. If they're chosen of God, and I'm not saying all, but if they're chosen of God and they're the elect of God, I believe that they will be born again and taken up with the church. 
Now that's no scripture. That's my, from, from understanding how I believe the same truth about babies that die. Some people believe that all babies die and go to hell. Some people believe that all babies die and go to heaven. I don't, I, I think it's, it's better scripturally because we know that in Adam we all die, in Adam we're all condemned. So every baby is condemned, so they're not righteous. They don't have an age of accountability to become, un, to become a sinner. No, they're all sinners. We're all condemned in, 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 in Adam. So the only way you can be uncondemned is to be born of God. And so if a baby dies, then we trust that God, who is a perfect God who can do nothing wrong, will bring all those that he has purposed to save before the foundation of the world to heaven with him. Now, the same thing at the rapture. I, I believe that the rapture of the church, it, does, it just seems inconceivable from everything we know about Scripture and everything we know about God, for you to have two, a husband and wife that has infant children, that both of them are believers, and then God is going to take them to heaven and leave behind a chosen baby that has no means of thing. But that's mine. That, that's not Scripture. That's me. Because every person that is elect is elect to be a part of the church or elect to be a part of the nation of Israel or elect to be a part of the Gentile nations. So whether he was elected to be a part of the church, if, if, if the time of the rapture is, is, that is already ordained of God, if when that time is here, then I believe that child, that baby, will be born again and be part of the church. Now, we know that there will be people that are not part of the church that will not be saved at that time that will become believers in the tribulation. We'll see that later on. But right now, I believe that the, if, the, if the rapture took place today and you had believing uh, parents that had an elect, chosen baby, child, I believe that child would go with the parents to heaven. Okay, the books are open at the Great White Throne Judgment. The other book, what's the other book that's there? The book, the book of Life. So the Book of Life is there to show that your name's not in the Book of Life. And so if you're a baby, you have no books of your events of life, but you're there because you're not in the Book of Life. So if you're not chosen of God and in the Book of Life, you're still in Adam. And all those who are in Adam are guilty because of Adam's sin, not because of their own sin. So we're guilty, not because you did anything wrong, just like Esau and Jacob. Jacob was not chosen because he did anything right. Esau was not, cho not chosen because he did anything wrong. It was God's choice. So at the Great White Throne Judgment, the books are open. So if you've lived your life and you have committed sin and you are not under the blood of Christ, that means you're going to stand before God and, and pay your own penalty. Then you're going to be judged according to your works. If a baby is there that died in Adam... He's still under condemnation because he's in Adam, but he has no further sins to be judged, and so therefore he is going to the lake of fire because he's in, he's in Adam, but he's not adding any judgment to that because he has nothing he committed. So that's, how you, that's the only way you can look at that scripturally because we know that you can't say that a baby's innocent when Romans 5 says it clear that you're not innocent. You're, you're condemned in Adam because you're in Adam. You have to be born again. So, okay, we're not going to get. We're not going to get to the timing of the raptures. We should stop making 
Well, I'm not making doctrine on that part about the, about the babies that go to the, in, with the rapture. I'm, I'm just saying, if you ask my opinion, and that's opinion, that's not scripture, I believe that babies that are chosen of God that are, have believing parents will go with their parents in the rapture. Only if the... Well, again, I think the same thing would apply. I don't think there's an age there. I don't think there's an age there. Um, I think that they will be born again. Uh, now, if you have teenage children, they may, they may not, and they still may, have an opp- they still may have an opportunity to be saved in the tribulation. I don't know. But I think, again, leave it in the hands of a perfect God who can do nothing wrong. And so he's going to do what's right because he's God and he does everything right. So at the time of the rapture, everything will be according to God's perfect It'll work. It'll all work. So we don't have to worry about that. The babies and children at Noah's time were saved. They weren't righteous. Only the righteous on the ark were saved. Everybody else was not saved. So the babies that died in the flood, evidently they were not part of the righteousness of God. And you see that all through the human, all through the history of the Old Testament, where God told the Jews to go in and wipe out everybody. Because they were all pagan and they were all unbelievers and they were none of them righteous. And so God told them to wipe them all out. And Oh God, we can't do that. That would be un- ungodly. God did it. Why can it be ungodly? He, I mean, we look at it from the standpoint, well, babies are innocent. No. The world is full of evil. And these babies haven't got to the point of doing evil, but they're, they will if they're not chosen of God. They will be evil. So, okay, we'll have to stop there, and we'll have to have part three of God's program for the church uh, next week. Uh, and we're going to deal next week. And this is the this is the area that is, causes the most consternation is the the timing of the rapture.